Church. This is working. <clears throat> I'm really excited to be here today to hear what my sister Stacy has to teach us. I know that it's going to be good. I know that she walks with God and God walks with her. Um, and through his help today, our eyes are going to be opened and we're going to be blessed. So this is the scripture she wants me to read. This is from John chapter 6. Jesus feeds the 5,000. After this, Jesus crossed over the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias, and a huge crowd kept following him wherever he went because they saw his miracles as he healed the sick. Then Jesus went up into the hills and sat down with his disciples around him. It was nearly time for the annual Passover celebration. Jesus soon saw a great crowd of people climbing the hill looking for him. Turning to Philip, he asked, Philip, where can we buy bread to feed all these people? He was testing Philip, for he already knew what he was going to do. Philip replied, it would take a small fortune to feed them. Then Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. There's a young boy here with five barley loaves and two fish. But what good is that with this huge crowd? Tell everyone to sit down, Jesus ordered. So all of them, the men alone numbered 5,000, sat down on the grassy slopes. Then Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks to God, and passed them out to the people. Afterward, he did the same with the fish and they all ate until they were full. Now gather the leftovers, Jesus told his disciples, so that nothing is wasted. There were only five barley loaves to start with, but 12 baskets were filled with the pieces of bread that people did not eat. When the people saw this miraculous sign, they exclaimed, surely he is the prophet we have been expecting. Jesus saw that they were ready to take him by force and make him king. So he went higher into the hills alone. Okay, now we're good. Okay. It is such a blessing to be here, you guys. I love this church. I love coming here. For those of you who don't know me, I attend regularly in Nelson. But my heart is deeply, deeply connected to this church and its people. Um, when Jesse asked me to cover for him, um, I said yes. Um, more as an act of obedience and the way Jeff, the pastor at Nelson, said it is do it as an act of worship. So we're just going to continue worshiping um, this morning. So first of all, I just want to say I really appreciate those of you who were with me on my trip. Um, I really felt your prayers and Marie, especially your presence with my water bottle going with me wherever <laughs> I went. Um, some critical moments that God must have prompted you guys to send an encouraging message or just respond to a post on Facebook. So I just don't want to minimize that and let you guys know that that really means a lot to people when they're away. <clears throat> I just want to thank you for that. Um, I've spent a lot of years in church. I've been going to church my whole life. And a lot of time it's just out of the discipline of going to church. I have to be honest, sometimes I'm like, Sunday, I gotta go to church. And with me, anytime I'm stepping out in intentional ministry, I start to become more and more needy, like we all should, I guess, on God and listening to what he wants me to do and where he wants me to go. And this trip in particular, I knew would be difficult. When we have gone before, 
The first time it was kind of more like a vacation with my family. The second time we had some intentional things that we were doing, but it was still to introduce Marie to the culture and have, we had a lot of fun. I knew that this trip would be completely different um, and I really needed to be in tune with where God was leading me and what he was, what he was trying to teach me through that. And rather than go through a bunch of pictures and an itinerary of what we did every day, what I really want to share this morning is what God did through this journey and what he's taught me. And I think it's best shown in the story of the loaves and the fish. It just kept coming up over and over again. So I spent some time looking over the story, and three things stood out to me when I was looking at that. The first thing is that the Gospel of John points out that they were barley loaves. None of the other Gospels say what kind of bread it was, so I was like, Okay, John, what's the big deal? Why barley? I don't know my grains very well, so I had to look it up. Apparently, barley is the cheapest form of peasant bread you can get. So it would be like, in fact, there's reference to the boy that offered his lunch maybe even being a slave. So the first thing that stood out to me was that there was nothing special about the offering at all. It was even less than nothing. It was poor. The second thing that stood out to me was Philip's response. He must have been more financially minded. He's thinking of the money. You know, do you know how much money it would, how many wages it would, um, it would take to even give everybody a bite? Like, this is ridiculous. The problem is just too costly to fix. Andrew's reaction is the one that really struck me the most. It would have been, like picture this, there's more than 5,000 people and some, some lad brings up this small lunch and Andrew actually brings it to Jesus amongst all of these people and says, well, here's something, Jesus, but I'm kind of embarrassed to even mention these loaves and fish because it's so small. It's way too small. I would have been embarrassed <laughs> for Andrew had I seen that. And so that's how I felt going into this trip. Um, here's what was in my lunch sack. We had, I had, the ability to travel, which is no small thing, but I have the ability to travel. We had our trauma counseling book that we got some help with from Abby but took a trauma course, Marlene and I, and felt like we threw together this book, but that's, that's what we had. And I had three years of martial arts training. Um, although Dean was the expert in that, I, I didn't have much to offer in that area. So just to review, for those of you who don't know what we were doing over there, we had our team of four, Dean and Marlene Semenoff, myself, and our friend and partner and Rwandan national, Zula Mushambukazi. Hopefully you will get to meet her someday. We're trying to bring her over for a visit. And Dean had it in his vision to start a, um, an organization called Martial Arts for Justice. And his vision, and we joined him in that, was to just respond to injustices that we were hap seeing happening globally and locally. And our vision was to empower vulnerable people so that they feel safe and capable of protecting themselves against violence and oppression. 
So what we thought would be meeting kind of a proactive response, like let's go teach women and children how to defend themselves so that they can avoid these other situations, um, God knew that we would also need to have a reaction to the violence and trauma that had already happened. And I think any time our spirit feels prompted to step out, for some of you it might be teaching Sunday school, which to me is scarier than going halfway across the world to Rwanda and Uganda. Those people are brave. Leading worship, that's another thing I would never do. I would never lead worship. You wouldn't want me to. Um, leading youth group, leading a small group, talking to a, a difficult neighbor. I think the impact and the blessing of saying yes to God is just going to blow you away every single time without exception. Amen. And I think it's made especially true if you feel inadequate and underqualified because then you cannot take any credit for what happens. None. Whatsoever. So I went into this trip totally unqualified with what would amount to the cheapest form of bread, like white wonder bread is what I felt like I had in my bag, to tackle a huge problem with a very, very small offering. And it was made worse by Dean ripping his hamstring in a foot race with Zula. <sighs> yeah. So there goes our expert in self-defense. He was... Uh, on crutches and using a cane the whole time. Felt like Gideon, oh, I'm gonna take more of your things away so that you can see me work. So we didn't have any expertise, really, even though we knew we were going to work with women who we knew would be genocide survivors, extremely poor. In fact, their organization is the Poor Women's Development Network. They have been victims of um, extreme violence and rape and those issues seem way too big to tackle. Um, to have any significant impact, you feel like Andrew and Philip, the entire nation is going, they're, they're not healed yet. Um, you walk around and you can just see the PTSD walking around on faces of people. Surely I don't understand anything that they've gone through, um, but I had my lunch, so I gave it over. So we were invited to partner with Crescents, Lukantabana, got that right? She runs an NGO in Kigali called the Poor Women's Development Network. And she invited us to train 20 women of her choosing as teachers to get our training out there and multiply ourselves with our oversight. So we spent about four hours a day for 10 days with these women, alternating that time between trauma counseling and physical training. And I shared with some of you before I left, and even got prayer about it too, about the deep heaviness that I was feeling before we left. People would ask me, oh, you're going back to Rwanda, you must be so excited, are you ready? And I'd be like, bloop, I just would start crying. I had no idea where it was coming from, but just a real heavy heart and I knew God that was breaking my heart in advance for women I hadn't met yet. I knew that he was preparing me for walking alongside these women. And I'm really thankful he did that because things got heavy really, really quickly from the very first day. We did intake forms with the ladies. Just to get an idea of their names how many kids they had, 
what kinds of trauma they had experienced. So we asked questions about how well they were sleeping and different things, and then we had them check off the boxes of the trauma that they had experienced. This is one of the 20. They're here. And I took these forms home that night. I was started to look through them and uh, man, my heart got ripped in half. It was completely heart-wrenching. I was completely overwhelmed with emotion and I just wept on the floor in a hot mess. Um, the magnitude of the problem was phenomenal. I felt like Philip and Andrew again. This problem is too big. My offering was too small. But all I could do is hold them up and say, you were with these women. Every, every little minute detail represented in these pages, you were there. You collected their tears. You felt their pain with them. And you're the only one who knows how to heal them. Help us, Lord. I just said over and over again, and then I handed over my fish and loaves. It was a really profound moment in my spiritual journey. It's a night I'll never forget, for sure. So the Sunday before I left, Dennis, who does worship sometimes at the Nelson Church, led us in a song called Oceans. I know you guys sing that one here as well. And as soon as I saw the lyrics on the screen, I was like, oh, crap. Because this song, can I say crap in church? Sorry. No problem. OK. I've heard Abby say worse, so I think I'm good. <laughs> the lyrics of this song struck me in a way that if I had been alone, I would have been on my face. But I was ugly crying in the pew where people behind me saw this happening, and hopefully no one thought I was laughing at Dennis standing up there singing by himself. These lyrics in particular, I sang in a new way with greater intensity than I've ever spoken them. And I knew that night, praying over these intake forms, that God was leading me deeper than I had ever thought I would go. Deeper than I was qualified to go. And all I could do was completely surrender. I couldn't just leave and go back home. But I don't think I've ever felt more inadequate in my life. And I just, I even said like, what, um, what am I doing here? But the next day, it was apparent that God knew in advance how perfect the pairing would be between trauma counseling and self-defense training. It was instantaneous, and it was miraculous. It, was, it, was, it happened right before our very eyes. It was visibly seen on the faces of these, of these women. And we had a little bit of knowledge about why we thought this would work. Dean had done some research on what happens to the nervous system and those kinds of things, but we really knew very little. I knew very little. And God was just equipping us to accomplish his tasks before we even knew how we were being used. Once I got home, I started doing more research. Better late than never. <laughs> and discovered a great parallel, I'm reading an awesome book, a great parallel between trauma therapy and how physical exercise, particularly martial arts actually, um, 
can heal the parts of the brain that were affected by trauma. There are two ways that utilizes the brain's own natural resiliency to have the trauma survivors live in the present and become fully alive again instead of living back in the moments where the trauma occurred. One of them is to reconnect with others and process the memories of the trauma out loud, which is what they were doing. The second way, and this is actually a quote from the book I'm reading, by allowing the body to have experiences that deeply and viscerally contradict the helplessness, rage, or collapse that resulted from the trauma. The self-defense training and relaxation techniques that we had planned in our program. It was like God knew what we were just starting to discover. He created the body, so I guess he knows how it works more than we did. And again, prepared us in advance, unbeknownst to us. So the ladies learned how to punch <coughs> and kick and block. They broke boards. They tried to do push-ups. <laughs> they cannot do push-ups. It was hilarious, actually. We're trying not to laugh. It, good effort. We did a relay race at one point where I think Dean had a bracelet as the um, reward if they won, and it was like they had won an Olympic gold medal. Just, it, it, it was hilarious. Every day they danced and they sang, and they shared genocide stories. They shared genocide stories for the first time in 23 years. Just let that sink in for a minute. You've got an entire nation where, whether they were alive or not, have been affected by the genocide. So you've got this culture who is all about saving face. They don't want to appear to have any problems whatsoever. So all this stuff gets stuffed down, and this starts to manifest itself in their bodies, their health, their faces, the way they act around each other. They cried together. They hugged each other, comforted each other, and they were visibly different people. You can play this video. We're playing it without sound because they are really loud. They were smiling and laughing. They were showing up early to class. They started wearing more colorful clothing. I mean, it was, it was as, as small as that. They would show up in these brilliant dresses. And by the end of the two weeks, they reported sleeping better without having to have the radio on. They had their blood pressure drop. Crescence actually has experienced the taste of blood in her mouth because of her experience with the genocide and what happened to her husband. That was gone. They had a renewed love for their children one woman shared that she didn't really even care about her kids that much, and she's crying as she's telling us now she wants to go home and teach this stuff to her kids. Most importantly, they had a really deep and excited desire to get this training out there amongst their friends and their social networks. They were so excited to do that. Some of them even thought they lost weight. <laughs> they did not lose weight. Now that I'm fit, uh, one another example that shows what God can do with fish and loaves is what He did with a 35-year-old 
heart sister of mine now. Her name is Fanny. So Marlene and I thought, you know, we're asking these ladies to share all these things about themselves. We should actually be willing to share some of the trauma that we may have experienced. But when I looked at my toolbox of trauma, I didn't really have anything except for the death of my father, which was six years ago. And although it was traumatic for me, compared to this stuff, it was embarrassing. I felt embarrassed. I felt like Andrew again. <laughs> but it's all I had, so I offered it up. I told them about how when my dad died, the lies kept started to creep in about my place in my family, and now I was alone, and how close I was to him, and how hard that was for me. I didn't share very long, but it was enough to open a door for Fanny to share about how she lost her dad. They were not even comparable stories. My father died in a hospital with my mom right next to him and my oldest sister relatively comfortably. Fanny was 12 when she lost her dad in the 1994 genocide, and he died a horrifically violent, painful, and humiliating and slow death in front of her. I, I couldn't even believe that the translator was getting the story, getting the words right, because it was so extreme. I'd never heard of such evil in my life. But God used what I thought was insignificant to help Fanny begin to heal. She sends me little, I call them love messages. They're hilarious. Little messages every day through WhatsApp. Stacy, I love you. God bless you. That's all. There's, we can't speak each other's language at all. This is all, I mean, all of this is without being able to speak to each other. It's another way God can multiply our efforts. He can break down those barriers. We had a deep, deep heart connection. Every time I saw her after that, she'd pump her chest, you know, like heart sisters. And she wanted to hold my hand all the time. And she wanted to trade jewelry. And um, she sent me a message the other day that said, I thank you with all of my emotion. She must have had a translation app do this for her. I thank you with all of my emotion about how you were with me. And in that sad time, you did what even my family couldn't do for me. That was not me. Okay, I think Fanny and I both know that that was God. Ooh, I got through Fanny's story without crying. Thank you very much. <laughs> These women warriors graduated the program. They got their certificates, which was, is a huge deal, getting a certificate over there. And they're now trained as leaders to go out into their own social networks to be trainers. And um, Zura and Crescent and us will continue to supervise them. We're in close touch with many of them, and we will go back and check on them and make sure how they're doing. And that's also one of the reasons why we wanted these, so we could compare. How are they doing now compared to how they were doing at the beginning? It's a strong group of ladies up there. Whew. Fierce. So after Rwanda, that was the two weeks there, we went to Uganda. Um, we were basically just searching out other connections that we could build upon and see, God, what are you doing here that we could join with you? And a previous contact was uh, fleshed out a little bit that we believe was spirit-led, was Cassandra, Child Cassandra Children's Aid. And they work with women and children who have been affected and infected by HIV AIDS. 
huge potential with these women. It was like a repeat the year before when we met Poor Women's Development Network for the first time. It looked a lot like this. So we know, we both feel confident, I think our team feels confident that this will be one of our next projects is to go back and do the training with these ladies. Huge gender-based violence problem in Uganda. And a lot of these women are suffering from that. So we did a shortened uh, version of the self-defense training for maybe two hours, but I almost got hurt. Like, they were not messing around. You give them a target and you're holding it further and further away from your face. I think I almost got punched in the face a few times. They have some things to work out. <laughs> we put them in small groups for a little bit of the CBT stuff, trying to get them to recognize their, as Abby calls it, their funky thinking and see where that's coming from and what the truth is. And after about a half an hour, we actually had to break them up because we were running out of time. We saw leaders arise in the small group situation. It was, it was pretty encouraging. So they have been, um, they have invited us to go back um, and do our re uh, resilience training with them. They all have a lot of kids. And so the next day they wanted us to come to the park because we didn't have a big enough venue to train with the kids. Okay, there's like between 400 and 500 kids showed up. <coughs> and it was what could have been disastrous because we had a previous day that was disastrous with 30 kids because of the presence of one particular person threw everything into chaos. So we were really praying over this day and it was Awesome. It was so fun. It was so organized. The kids could speak a little bit more English, so it was really engaging. At one point, I'm looking at Dean, and we think we're, we've got all of our groups, and he just looks up and he says, oh, shoot. He, he didn't say shoot. <laughs> I, I will not say that word. Cause, uh, Abby might say that word, but no. He sees another 40 or 50 kids in their little, you know, single file line coming through the grass to join. They just threw them in the mix. And what was hilarious is, you know, every time they'd kick, their shoes would go flying off into the air. And it was just a great time. Cassandra Children's Aid were very professional. They treated us like royalty. They fed every one of these kids that day and us water and food. And we're excited to go back and work with these vulnerable kids. They were amazing. In our last days, we just wanted to stay open to where God was leading. We had a couple of days. We didn't have anything scheduled. And by divine appointment, uh, Dean met a man named Peter in the hotel lobby. <clears throat> and it was after that really, really bad day that I referenced where everything was chaotic. So Marlene and I w were just done. Like, it was the one day where I was like, if I hear another sad thing or... If someone talks to me, <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna lose it. I just need to go to my room. And Dean comes over after talking to this man, and he's all excited. And he leans over and he says, "Okay, I just met a guy, and and he like he does stuff like like IJM does. He goes and rescues victims of child sacrifice, and he's coming back tonight to talk to us. Do you want to come?" No. <laughs> I did not have the space in my head or my heart for that that day. But to Dean's credit, he did not say no a single time the whole trip. I said no that one time and I regret it. I wish I would have gone to that first meeting. 
but God gave me another chance. Peter, whom you're going to see in the video, has his own fish and loaf story. So I'm going to show you this video. Don't worry, it's not graphic. It does have sensitive material. And we met all the people in this video. Not necessarily every one of the kids, but a lot of the kids. And this video was actually on YouTube. It had like 20 views. And I think now because of me like watching it over and over again, it has like 65. <laughs> <laughs> so we thought Rwanda was pretty deep waters, okay? We had no idea um, what was coming. Champisi Child Care Ministries started just as a group of people who wanted to see if stopped in their country. You would wake up in the news and you see a headline, someone has been beheaded by which doctor. You would see somewhere a child has been killed, another one has been cut off the head, and it was horrible, very terrific things. And we said, what can we do? with a campaign, Earn Child Sacrifice, uh, under the leadership of Peter. Peter had the vision. We felt led by the Lord in the year 2009 to start Champisi Child Care Ministries first to respond to the two issues, the children that have no chance to education, I call that injustice, and the child sacrifice issue. Uh, we are involved in, the, in rehabilitating those children that have survived. The rehabilitation center this is the place where we put the child sacrifice victims. So most of the times they are traumatized. They feel uh, like they are not loved. It cannot go away in one day or two days. It's a, a process. Playing with them, counseling them, loving them. Champi Sijaka Ministries is looking to end number one child sacrifice, but also the plight of the children to do sponsorship for the children to improve their lives in education. We have a school that uh, we have established to be able to reach out to the community. And the beauty with this school is that now we have a, an opportunity to have, at the moment, 300 children that we reach for basic education, but we also reach for the gospel. That's important in, in the community transformation for God. I was the first child to be sponsored. When I went through high school, then went to campus, I came back and volunteered with KTM. Then afterwards, I was employed by KTM. But who am I from Champis as a community that is seen as a community from down deep in the village to go to campus? And I'm back, I'm helping. Of course, we should teach the children, and those children will also be able to teach other generations to continue to serve God. To continue growing stronger and knowing God even the more. He's really been there for us. And when I think about the goodness that he has done in my family, I really appreciate We have been able to sensitize people 
on the need to stop injustices against children. And we hope that it will create even more impact as we continue to pray for our children and for our country. I can't imagine deeper waters than that. Peter's just a, I don't say just, he's a pastor and an accountant. He's not an investigator, he's not a therapist. There's nothing extraordinary about him, except that he and Moses saw a problem and they said yes. He is suffering from his own secondary trauma, he admitted to us, obviously. But God is starting to put the pieces together of his ministry, and we can't wait to see what he does. So Peter was very excited to bring us to their compound, show us their school that they have built, and, and dreams for a clinic and different things like that. <clears throat> he wanted us to come into his office to look at some case files. I said yes. Thankfully, I said yes. In those case files, he had very, very graphic photographs of children who had been decapitated or had other body parts missing. And I, like most of you, I was pulling one of these, you know, looking, trying to just look away. And I felt so strongly, God, move my head back and say, you look and see. You need to look and see this. I'm still waiting for him to answer me why. I don't know what I'm supposed to do with that. I don't know if we're supposed to if I'm supposed to raise money, if I'm supposed to move there, if I'm supposed to get John and his counseling degree to come over there with me. Um, I'm really trying to not jump the gun because that's what I do. Um, I see a situation like this and instead of holding inside of myself, it makes me angry and I want to do something. So maybe that's why he showed me. I don't know if I'm supposed to be a voice, but this is happening right now. It's actually on the rise in Uganda right now. There's a growing middle class that are willing to pay for parts of children, which they believe is the most powerful thing, to give them prosperity um, in their new endeavors. <coughs> so I obeyed and, and looked. But then we got to go meet some of the kids. That's the part that I couldn't wait for. He had just rescued a week before. In fact, when Dean ran into him, he was just dropping off his investigator. They had rescued 15 boys and girls from Islamic extremists who were brainwashing and torturing them to become child soldiers for their cause. So we played with them a little bit, went into their room, tried to get them to talk to us, prayed with them in a big circle. They were young. Some of them, I think, were like eight. And we got to meet Robert from the video. He was very curious about Starblock set. 
Dean was teaching him some moves. Um, he's scheduled for surgery in Australia that they keep having to postpone because of the lack of funds. But by God's design, Peter ran into or sat next to an Australian doctor on a plane one time who offered to do all their surgeries for free. So he's done genital reconstruction. He's done um, brain, um, spinal cord. Robert, uh, because of his injuries, his feet point downwards, and he needs to get his Achilles tendons worked on so that they can stand like our feet, and he can hopefully stand up against a wall or maybe walk again someday. And then we met Hope. Just like Fanny stood out to me in Rwanda, this young girl. <clears throat> I think she was six or seven when she was first abducted. And a witch doctor had her bound on an altar for two years. And he would keep her alive enough to just take whatever bits and pieces of her that he could sell. And when I sat down on the bed with her, that's her bed up in the top right corner. Those are two of the kids that we brought with us to meet the children. Her face lit up like I have never seen joy before. Just like in that picture with her yellow bib on. She was making sounds of great joy. She couldn't speak because part of her tongue had been removed. So I did try really hard to keep it together. But she was definitely the highlight. And if I have ever met a more courageous person in my life, I don't, can't think of who it would be. And I've been trying to process her level of joy. Peter says she's the happiest one there. And it really struck me just this past week, actually, that this is the joy of salvation. She's been through hell. And she was rescued from it. And how humbling that I should have that joy. Because I've been rescued from that. She humbles me. <laughs> she humbles me. So, <clears throat> after experiencing all of that, I came home. Real spirit of heaviness. I didn't want to do anything. Um, it was ridiculous to even go to the grocery store. <laughs> Tried to get prayer. I talked to Jeff. I talked to Abby. Lyle was hounding me. Um, it's a really lonely place because you have all this stuff that needs to get out, but who wants to sit down for hours and talk about child sacrifice and genocide? I came, uh, Tan invited me to a prayer night that you guys have here sometimes on Thursdays, so I felt that I should come. And um, <clears throat> that really, really helped. And something that Deanna prayed over me, it always helps to pray scripture over people, um, that I would trade my spirit of heaviness for a garment of praise. And it's a process, but that really has been working. <laughs> Amazing, scripture works. Huh. 
instead of despair and hopelessness, I feel hope and expectation for what God's going to do in the lives of these people. I feel totally honored and privileged that I, our stories are now intertwined. And they're, they're a piece of me now. It's, and I think that's what's hard, is that you're leaving your friend back in all the pain, and then you come over here, and, you know, I was upset that I didn't have enough shower head pressure the other night. I was so mad at myself. You just really get perspective on your first world problems. So that praise and that joy is coming. I just can't wait to see how God uses me, please, Lord, to go deeper and further. So my question for you guys this morning, my challenge to you, is what's in your lunch sack? It might not even be in your lunch sack yet. God stirred in my heart to get my black belt. How ridiculous is that to be 45 and start training to get your black belt? Like, that's dumb. Did not make sense, but I knew that this might be at the end of it. And so I said, yes. What's God stirring inside of you? Is he asking you to learn Spanish? Or is he asking you to uh, do something that just kind of seems ridiculous? Like, how could he ever use that? What's he asking you to hand over that you already have? So that you can see him work through you despite the deep waters and the fear. He knows that we're afraid. He knows how deep the waters are. And he knows what we have is ridiculously small. And all he does is ask us to hand it over. That's actually the easy part. Let him pray over it. And then we get to sit back and watch him multiply it. And he will, he will multiply it in ways that you couldn't even imagine. So my question is, what would your life look like today? If you said yes to God and let him take your barley loaves and your fish and then allow him to make you brave. Thanks for having me this morning. I don't know, Marie, do you want to come up and pray or want me to? Come up and pray. Father, we thank you so much, God for this journey that you've taken Stacy on and that she was here today to share that with us. Father, I pray that you would show us what's in our lunch sack. Show us what we're to lay down before you, God. Father, show us your mercy and your compassion that you have on us, God. Help us to take our first world problems and lay them at your feet and be gracious, kind, and loving people. Let us never forget, Father, how you've blessed us. Let us never forget your love. Father, I pray for all of us that we could sit, stand, kneel in your presence each and every day, God, that we would pause our busy lives. Father, that we would remember that in Christ alone we have everything. In Jesus we have everything that we need. We pray that you would bless Stacy. Pray that you would continue to give her wisdom and vision 
for her experience that she's had. Give her peace, God. In Jesus' name.